Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. It can certainly be safe to say that the 1960s produced some of the most dramatic changes in the world of popular music. From the early days of rock and roll, through to the swinging beat scene, the British invasion, American surf music and right through to the San Francisco sound of the peace and love generation, there was a voice that was there from the beginning. That voice was still there at the end of the decade and beyond. Sadly, that voice is largely unknown to today's generation. Some of today's kids will probably only be vaguely familiar with it if they're fans of some of the biggest and most popular movies to come out of that decade. That voice belonged to a man who was described as the UK's answer to Frank Sinatra, a label he detested. For this particular star, he was not an answer to anything. He was unique. He was his own entity, had his own marvellous style, and was possibly the finest male popular singer the UK has ever produced. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Mr Matt Munro. I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now, it's gone. That's 
Glamorous 60s showbiz world inhabited by Matt Munro was a very different place to that of young Terry Parsons. For that was the birth name of Matt Munro, born in Shoreditch, East London on the 1st of December 1930. Shoreditch was one of the toughest areas in London, where violent crime and theft were just everyday occurrences. Terry was the youngest of five children. His father, Frederick, was a chemical worker and a packer for a drugs company, a veteran of the First World War. His wife, Terry's mother Alice, was an attractive, well-respected woman who looked after their large family without complaint. She would keep the house spotless, ensuring that everyone was fed and still hold down a cleaning job during the day. Life would prove to be tougher as young Terry grew. His father, who had not been a particularly well man after being gassed in the First World War, was wrongly diagnosed with malaria before it was eventually realised he actually had tuberculosis. He struggled on for two more years, in and out of hospital with Alice both by his side and looking after their five children. Fred Parsons died, aged only 40 years old, on the 12th of May 1934. Young Terry, not even four, would have vague memories of his father and the next few years were spent moving from house to house. Alice bringing up the family single-handedly with help from a few cleaning jobs here and there. Not two years after Frederick Parsons had died, Terry's mother was taken seriously ill. Her heavy workload and struggles to bring up the children had all taken its toll. Alice, suffering from exhaustion and mental breakdown, was removed to a sanatorium, leaving her two youngest, Harry and Terry, in the care of a foster family. After six torturous months for young Terry, Alice was finally discharged, but almost immediately on her return she started working just as hard as before. This left the older children, Alice and Reg, in charge of Terry, and Terry seized the opportunity to be as disruptive as he possibly could. The unsettled home life was mirrored when it came to Terry's education. In a three-year period, he attended four different schools, and it was at the second of these schools, Duncan, that he was admitted to hospital with infective hepatitis, a condition that would take him two years to recover from and go on to play a significant role in our story later on. On returning to school, his attendance was at best sporadic, and he would proudly boast that in one particular school year, he only attended for one single week. Terry was a keen footballer in those early days and would speak of glorious memories of childhood soccer matches. And in those pre-war years, the Bakelite wireless in the kitchen would convey the magical sounds of Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald. Thank you. 
With war on the horizon, preparations were made throughout the summer of 1939 to evacuate inner-city children to the countryside. Operation Pied Piper commenced on September 1st, 1939, the day that Germany invaded Poland. Young Terry, along with thousands of other children, were packed off into numerous buses and trains. With gas masks slung over their shoulders in cardboard boxes suspended by string, nearly three million children were dispatched to be taken in by strangers the length and breadth of the country. Eight-year-old Terry Parsons was evacuated to Cornwall. And Terry, being Terry, immediately decided that he wasn't staying and somehow made his way back to London, declaring that he wasn't going back. And so, Terry spent the next few years growing up in the war-ravaged streets of East London, playing in the abandoned buildings and bomb sites, constantly on the move from house to house as the Blitz raged around them. Eventually, Terry was evacuated again as London was proving to be far too dangerous and ended up in Linslade near Leighton Buzzard, a place hopefully familiar to our listeners as it is one of the villages associated with the Great Train Robbery. Failing his 11 plus exam, he left school at 14 and returned to London. But it wasn't the familiar childhood London he once knew. That had been swept away by the Luftwaffe, the East End docks being a primary target. And despite a few months of making a few bob here and there, selling on scrap and other valuables from the bombed out houses, Alice Parsons was not happy at Terry's return. She could see Terry getting into some serious trouble if he stayed in London. So off again he was packed once more, this time to the small village of South Luffenham in Rutland. Here, life was idyllic for those last few months of the war. The countryside was completely different to life in London. Fresh air walks, swimming, choir singing, homemade bread, jam and cakes, along with fresh milk and eggs, ensured that Terry did indeed remain safe and healthy right through to those early months of 1945. Returning to London, this time his childhood over at the age of just 14. Leaving school, Terry embarked on a series of different yet all mundane jobs. There was the Imperial Tobacco Company, sweeping debris from the cutting machines and collecting up waste tobacco, in between smoking vast quantities himself. He spent a week delivering Guinness for the Bulldog Brewery, before becoming in swift succession an office worker, builder's apprentice and railway fireman. He tried his hand as a plumber's mate, decorator's mate and plasterer's mate. But then there was more. Electrician, coalman, bricklayer, lorry driver, curbstone fitter, stonemason, milkman and baker. 
In one year, he recalled holding a total of 53 different jobs, and he hated every single one of them. It was also from the age of 14 that Terry's love for music truly grew. In 1940, Billboard magazine published its first music popularity chart. The first number one record, I'll Never Smile Again by Tommy Dorsey, featuring Frank Sinatra on vocals. Initially, young Terry didn't think too much of Sinatra, but later in life truly believed him to be the best interpreter of a song. Young Terry would also count Perry Como as one of his favourites and would remain a staunch admirer throughout his life. As Matt Munro many years later, Terry recalled hearing Como singing Prisoner of Love on Voice of America through the American Forces Network and it was due to that song that he set his sights on a musical career. After leaving school and setting out on his varied, unsettled path of employment, Terry would spend as much time as he could singing or performing for other people. His first public performance was certainly not planned, and it was more of a dare if truth be told. One night, whilst out of his mates at the Tufnell Park Palais, he tried to impress a girl he was dancing with by singing in her ear. On stage that night, the Bill Evans band, and the girl said to Terry, if he really wanted to impress her, or perhaps he should just get up on stage and sing along. Encouraged by his friends as well as a few beers, Terry walked up to Bill Evans and asked if he could sing a number. Evans agreed, and he was so impressed that he gave Terry a regular Saturday night spot with the band. Terry would receive ten bob every Saturday for singing two numbers with his star turn being I Wonder Who's Kissing Her Now.
Terry's weekend success would boost him through the tedium and boredom of his usual weekday jobs, and that success would just grow and grow. Modelling himself on Perry Como, he was popular with the girls and people would gather around and buy him drinks. Eventually, by 1947, Terry found himself singing most nights at the Boston in Tufnell Park, with audiences of over 200 in attendance. This gig would pay him the sum of 17 shillings and sixpence, which was just as well, for as we've heard, Terry could hardly hold down a regular day job for more than a week or so. Following the war, armed forces conscription began at the age of 18. It was however possible at this time to volunteer to serve from 17, which Terry did on his 17th birthday. Terry had always dreamt of travelling the world, and his time abroad over the next five years would prove to be some of the happiest times in his life, as well as some of the most pivotal. Montague Street in London was the recruiting office for the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, and it was here that 2233273 Craftsman Parsons enlisted. Initially stationed in Britain, he passed his driving test, a mechanics course, and then an advanced driving exam before finally being deemed fit to serve by the medical board. Terry trained primarily in Wiltshire around the Stonehenge area and was immersed in basic soldier training which included marching and drilling, billet cleaning as well as learning how to use a wide variety of guns and grenades. The six weeks basic training flew by and Terry embarked on his trade instruction as a tank driver at Perham Downs. camp was only 85 miles from home and Terry would often be late returning to camp from his weekend visits to his family. Terry would frequently go AWOL and find himself in military prison. His promotion to Lance Corporal lasted all of seven days and his stripe was stripped from him for one of his many misdemeanours, usually that of breaking the curfew. Terry's dream was to travel and he'd already requested an overseas posting on entry to the army. But due to the surplus of mechanical engineers, most postings were in England, and Terry found himself not in exotic Hong Kong or Singapore, but grey, dreary Blackdown and windswept Blandford. Here his days were filled with the drudgery of NATO exercises, guard duty and emptying dustbins. Throughout this part of his service, Terry would continue to perform wherever possible when returning home, or entering local talent competitions. It 
Eventually, after two years, Terry finally got his long-dreamed-of three-year posting to Hong Kong as a mechanic and tank instructor. The year was 1950, and it was an exciting time to be in Hong Kong, as the country was going through an intense post-war rebuilding period. It was during his service in Hong Kong that Terry would form friendships that would last his entire lifetime. On Saturday evenings, he and his friends would take the Star Ferry to the Chiro Club at the Murray Barracks. Here, Terry won a talent contest sponsored by the Philip Morris Tobacco Company. First prize, 10 Hong Kong dollars, 200 cigarettes, and most importantly, a half-hour spot on Rediffusion, the local commercial radio station. Terry would go on to win the weekly talent contest an unprecedented seven times, resulting in the organisers having to bar him as the sponsors were concerned and it might appear the contest was rigged. But there was a fortunate solution to this problem. The promoters offered Terry his own residency on one of their shows on Radio Hong Kong, which resulted in Rediffusion giving him his own programme simply entitled Terry Parsons Sings. Terry's success went from strength to strength with job offers from cabaret spots to entertaining the troops, all while still serving during the daytime. Eventually, having been spotted by Bing Rodriguez, Terry was asked to front his dance band at the Star and the Ritz Hotels. Terry would jokingly remember that he was probably the highest paid squaddy in the British Army, earning 60 Hong Kong dollars during the week for his army service and nearly another 300 for his appearances with the band. The last 18 months of Terry's career in Hong Kong involved him frequently being caught by the guards on duty as he continually failed to meet the 1am curfew. He was even escorted by armed guard to his first rediffusion broadcast after returning to the barracks late the night before. These were some of the happiest days for young Terry Parsons, and as we will discover, he returned to Hong Kong and the Far East and the numerous friends he had made there many, many more times. As Matt Munro, years later, he would recall, you always remember the good things, but I cannot remember for the life of me any really bad things about my army career. Of course I did jankers, but that was the extent of my punishments. I never even got sent away. The army taught me self-discipline and a great deal about comradeship. I was always conscious of being well turned out and I became very adroit at dodging people, especially when it came to getting back into the camp after curfew. Performance after performance, show after show, Terry would wow the crowds at various venues in Kowloon. There were gigs at the Naffy, YMCA and dance halls and clubs, each one receiving rapturous applause. The newly promoted Corporal Parsons, the good-looking soldier with a distinctive voice and who was adored by all the young girls, was proving to be a hit in the far-flung colony. But of course, he remained a complete unknown back home. There were performances with the Shropshire Light Infantry Dance Band, the Do Re Mies, and the double act Parsons and Duval. Terry would continue with radio appearances and even shows for the governor himself. 
But eventually, Terry's time in Hong Kong was at an end. He performed at just about every venue in the country, from intimate gigs to black tie events. There were jazz bands, big bands and radio shows. Terry had served for five years and had volunteered to stay on in the army. He had seven years left on the reserve. His CEO explained that under the current regulations though, he could only serve a maximum of three years in the Far East. He'd therefore have to return to England for at least six months and then they would try and reclaim him. Thinking long and hard and realising that he could probably end up posted in Germany through the winter months, Terry decided to take his discharge and leaving the country that he'd come to adore over the past three years, as Matt Munro, he would often cite his time there as the springboard for his aspirations as an international singer. And perhaps the people he admired most were the Filipino musicians he had worked so closely with during that time. Later recalling the 1950s in Hong Kong, Matt Munro would say, I can never forget Cesar Velasco, Bing Chambing, Bing Rodriguez and Chris Vila, who taught me how to sing well. We drank, dined, slept, laughed and stayed together in Hong Kong during my past wild days. Filipinos are always special people to me. And the Philippines would later prove to be a very important part in the story of Matt Munro. June 1953. Britain was on a high with celebrations of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Terry returned to a UK that only knew him as Terry Parsons, the lad who couldn't hold down a job, not the Terry Parsons who had wowed audiences across Hong Kong. Terry, bored with the dull mundane Monday to Friday work practices, knew exactly what he wanted. And that wasn't just some 9 to 5 Monday to Friday job. Finding work with the Jimmy Cavanagh trio and later Stan Davis's band, Terry returned to gigs across the London area, including his old haunt, the Tufnell Park Palais. Winning talent contest after talent contest, he also recorded two tracks on the 27th of June 1953, How Deep Is The Ocean and All Of Me. But despite all the gigs and the talent shows, it just didn't bring in enough cash. So Terry had to return to lorry driving during the day. And it was just as well, for it was also around this time that Terry met Irish Jordan, his first serious relationship since returning from Hong Kong. This relationship soon became marriage in January 1955 after Iris fell pregnant, soon giving birth to a son, Mitchell, in July that year. More jobs followed for Terry, long-haul deliveries to Glasgow, milk rounds, the usual tedious day-to-day -day necessities in between performing in the evenings. With money even more vital, he now had to provide for his new wife and child.
1954, the year that rock and roll changed the world of popular music forever. Bill Haley and the Comets were rocking around the clock, and Elvis Presley struck gold with That's Alright Mama. Terry, having been spotted by Harry Leader, whose American-sounding band was proving to be very popular, convinced Terry to turn professional. Changing his name briefly to Al Jordan, Terry's success began to grow. And it was as Al Jordan that Terry gained his first commercial release, when on the 10th of August 1955 he recorded a cover of Frankie Lane's Strange Lady in Town with Harry Leader's band for the American-owned Solitaire label. Despite Harry Leader arranging the recording, he couldn't take credit for it being Terry's first disc. That particular honour belonged to a version of On With The Motley from Pagliacci that Terry had recorded in Hong Kong with Mina Silas on piano, which by all accounts was dreadful. professional singer, Terry went on the road with Harry Leader and his band. There was a summer season in Bridlington and a tour around the country. Whilst on tour in Glasgow in 1956, Terry joined a couple of the musicians from Leader's rhythm section and cut a private record at the Biggers studio. Recording their version of Polka Dots and Moonbeams cost Terry 30 shillings, and hearing his voice played back to him, he was bitterly disappointed as it sounded nothing like he'd imagined. Bass player Spike Heatley borrowed the track, and for a while Terry's hopes rested as he forgot about trying to forge a career as a recording artist. Life on the road was tough, especially with a wife and young baby waiting back home. He simply couldn't afford to stay with the dance band anymore, Despite working five nights a week, driving the tour bus in the day and singing in the evenings, he was only earning about £12 a week. Terry's next job would go on to be associated with him for the rest of his life. Based at the Holloway Garage, Terry became bus driver N46052 for London Transport. With his regular conductor, Nellie Mitchell, he would regularly drive the number 27 Highgate to Teddington route 
and sometimes the number 14 from Putney Bridge to Hornsey Rise. Still singing in the evenings, he'd regularly appear at the favourite at Hornsey Rise as well as the Town Hall and other venues. Fred Atwell, one of the biggest musical acts of the 1950s, heard here performing the Poor People of Paris. At the time, she was Decca's most successful artist with her numerous boogie woogie and ragtime hits. Unknown to Terry, former band member Spike Heatley had sent a copy of the record that they cut in Glasgow directly to Winifred Atwell. Liking what she heard, and with a recognised track record of nurturing new talent, she and her husband, former stage comedian Lou Levison, met with Terry following one of her performances at the London Palladium. An audience with Dick Rowe, the man who famously turned down the Beatles, was set up, and immediately they took on the practically unprecedented step of offering Terry an LP and a recording contract. Usually, most labels would have suggested a single disc release to minimise any risk. But so impressed with Decker that on the 17th of September 1956, he was offered a one-year contract with two one-year options. He also negotiated a new suit, shoes and overcoat, the cost of which to be deducted from future royalties. There was also a management agreement which he signed with Lou Levinson. Still driving the number 27 bus, six weeks later, Terry cut his debut album with the Malcolm Lockyer Orchestra entitled Blue and Sentimental. There, surrounded by some of the finest musicians in the country, Terry sang, still wearing his heavy blue serge bus driver's jacket, complete with pasteboard roundel, indicating that he was licensed to drive a public service vehicle. The atmosphere was a little uneasy at first. After all, nobody there knew who this not-so-tall lad in a bus driver's uniform was, but by the end of the first number, everybody there was convinced. The one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all You always take the sweetest rose And crush it till the petals fall With a freshness free of any gimmicks, he sang the song with a maturity that certainly wasn't indicated by his looks or his experience. With a hasty word you can't recall. And by the second number, with bus driver's jacket now hanging on a peg, and with open collar and loosened tie, 
Terry sang as if he'd always belonged there in that studio. I love you most of all. Decker decided that Terence Edward Parsons was not a name befitting the latest singing sensation. A new name was required for his recording career, and by all accounts it didn't take long to come up with an alternative, Matt. Taken from Matt White, a journalist who'd recently written a centre-page spread in the Daily Sketch extolling Terry's virtues, and Munro from Winifred's father, Munro Atwell. Matt Munro was born. Munro was spelt M-O-N-R-O, and in the future it would forever be misspelt by journalists and the like, sometimes as many as three different ways within the same article. I love you most of all. Matt's answer to it, it's easy to remember, it's an anagram of moron. With every dream gone Is lonely and silent Shades are all drawn And my heart is heavy As I gaze upon A cottage for sale That first album, Blue and Sentimental, consisting of ten standards, was recorded in just one day. Our beautiful garden has withered away. Immediately, it led to another contract, this time to appear on the BBC's The Show Band Show with Cyril Stapleton and his orchestra, the most popular show band in Britain. For sale. The BBC Show Band, previously the BBC Dance Orchestra, was renowned as the BBC's prestige outfit for the playing of popular music and attracted not only the top British singers, but also American artists such as Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole. But when I reach your window, there's empty space. The keys in the mailbox, the same as before, but no one is waiting for me anymore. The end of our story is told on the door A cottage for sale But when I your window there's empty space the keys in the mailbox the same as before but no one is waiting for me anymore the end of our story is told on the door a cottage 
Matt's first single was recorded on the 10th of November 1956. Entitled Everybody Falls in Love with Someone, it was also recorded about this time by other artists Dickie Henderson and Don Rennie, a common practice at the time. And for many years after, Decker would dictate to Matt exactly how they wanted him to interpret songs. And he would sing in a style that really wasn't his own, and he felt that it was the worst thing he'd ever done. Everybody falls in love with someone Why won't someone fall in love with me? I'm tired of being lonely and walking by myself Why won't someone come along and take me off the shelf? I am in the 50s, all recorded versions of the same song would be released on the same day and despite the record charts being introduced to the UK in 1952 Sheet music listings were considered more important. In love with someone, why won't someone fall in love with me? Sheet music sales in the big shops at this time could reach up to 10,000 copies per day, easily surpassing the number of records sold. Everybody falls in love with someone, why won't someone fall in love with me? Needless to say, despite a lot of publicity surrounding its release, the single failed to sell. Matt, ever confident, handed in his notice at the bus garage and officially bid farewell to both his old career and his name. Say that he was lonely as could be. Everybody falls in love with someone. Why won't someone fall in love with me? It was not long after Matt's departure from the bus depot and his new job fronting the BBC show band on the light programme that he met Mickey Schuller. Mickey, originally christened Renata, was a German refugee, sent to the UK at the age of five in 1938. When Mickey first met Matt, she was a respected music plugger, working out of Mills Music on London's famous Denmark Street. Their friendship grew stronger over the following months, with Mickey turning down Matt's constant offers of coffee. Months that would see Matt's career grow ever more stronger too. Matt's first official day with the BBC show band and his BBC radio debut was pre-recorded on the 9th of December 1956 at the Aeolian Hall in New Bond Street. Cyril Stapleton's show band show was on air three times a week. There were two one-hour shows mixed with comedy and a third two-hour show broadcast on Friday nights. Working with such household names as Burt Whedon, Alfred Marks and the Stargazers, it was here that Matt first met and worked with Bob Monkhouse, creating a friendship that lasted throughout their lives. 1957 began well. Matt, as well as his BBC show, was appearing on Winifred Atwell's show on Radio Luxembourg. 
Winifred Atwell was at the top of her game in 1957. After a sellout tour of Australia, numerous TV and radio appearances, a season at the London Palladium and two recent million-selling singles, The Poor People of Paris and Let's Have a Ding Dong, she could do no wrong. All of Matt's hard work and success was putting a strain on his already troubled marriage. And I knew... Alcohol began to creep into Matt's everyday routine. Not seen as an issue, merely the usual thing that was done after a hard day's graft. There'll be no Eventually, Matt, feeling that Iris, whose dissatisfaction with him and her misery were dragging him down, left the family home in early 1957 and moved back in with his mother. For that Mickey Schuller, whose own marriage had broken down by this point, finally accepted Matt's offer of going out for a coffee. It's still in a coffee that would lead to a very successful and happy marriage for many years. It's still in my heart. When you walk in the garden in the Garden of Eden With a beautiful woman And you know how you care And a voice in the garden In the Garden of Eden Tells you she is forbidden Can you leave her there? Matt's second single was to be Gone With The Wind with My Old Flame on the B-side. It was shelved, however, in favour of Garden of Eden. And you're feeling so grand Can you leave her to heaven? Winifred Atwell had originally recorded the song in December 1956 and again typical of the era, four different versions appeared in the top 30 in the following January. You walk in the garden In the garden of Eden With a beautiful... Matt was rushed into the studio to record his version but by then Frankie Vaughan was at number one with his rendition and there seemed very little room in the chart for a fifth version of the song. Tells you she is forbidden Can you leave her there When you yearn for loving Then she touches your hand And your heart starts a pounding And you're feeling so bad Can you leave her to heaven And obey the somebody else She means her tender songs for somebody else And even when I have my arms around her I know her thoughts are strong for somebody else Less than a week later, Matt recorded his next two tracks for Decca. I Never Had a Dream Like This Before and Mari Piccola, both of which were never released and since then copies have never been found despite being listed on the main log at Decca. Alone on the shelf, it's worse to fall in love by yourself, the one I love. The Blue and Sentimental album was released for the American market, this time including two new tracks, The One I Love and My Old Flame. 
there were more radio appearances and a performance at the Ivor Novello Awards in April. And even when I have... The notices for the US version of Blue and Sentimental were good and a further two albums were requested. Decker, however, had other ideas. The hands I hold belong to somebody else I'll bet they're not so cold to somebody else It's tough to be alone on the shelf It's worse to fall in love by yourself The one I love belongs to somebody else What can I say, dear, after I say I'm sorry 1956 saw a massive change in the popular music scene. I'm sorry. I this was the era that gave birth to Elvis Presley, Cliff Richard and Blue Suede Shoes, not ballads. And Decker started to have second thoughts about Matt Munro and any thoughts of further albums were pushed to one side. I was all wrong, but right or wrong, I don't blame you. In the four months since signing with the label, as well as the 10-inch LP Blue and Sentimental, they released three singles, which all failed to chart. I know that I made you cry. And if this wasn't bad enough, in June 1957, the BBC decided to end its association with the show band, effectively killing it. I'm sorry. After the initial high and promises of success, things were looking bad. Still, there were the other radio appearances and gigs, but money was scarce. He even considered returning to bus driving to make ends meet, but Mickey, who by now was proving to be even more dependable, and the voice of common sense was adamant that Matt should actually turn semi-pro in case he missed a big job opportunity. I was all wrong, but right or wrong, I don't blame you. Why should I take somebody like you and shame you? I know that I made you cry, and I'm so sorry, dear. What can I say, dear, after I say I'm sorry? What can I say, dear, after I say I'm sorry? skies at sunrise every sunset too seems to be bringing me memories of you
Matt's split from Decker would eventually prove to be one of the more fortunate events in the ladder to his stardom. It was during this time that he first met songwriter Don Black as he desperately hung around Tim Pan Alley trying to get recording work. Eventually Matt was signed again to a major record label, Fontana, a subsidiary of Philips. They signed him to a one-year contract with two one-year options. How I wish I could. And almost immediately his fortunes picked up with various TV offers and a 13-week radio show entitled Music About Town. They have left a rosary of tears. Your face beams in my dreams. Spite of all I do. Seems to bring memories of you. Don't let the golden age slip through your fingers. Don't let the golden age pass us by. These are the golden years that offer everything. Matt's first single on the Fontana label was The Golden Age, with I'll Never Have a Sweetheart on the B side in a situation almost identical to his time at Decker, rival artist Terry Dean also released his version of the song at the same time. Needless to say, sales were poor. His next release, A Story of Ireland, performed little better. In 1956, Matt was asked to take part in experimental colour TV transmissions for the BBC, singing How Long Has This Been Going On, followed by an appearance on Top Numbers. Offers of work slowly trickled in, and Fontana were not very forthcoming with any new material for him to record. Back to the BBC to record four experimental stereophonic radio recordings, plus a few song demos for music publishers to submit to other artists for consideration just enough to keep him ticking over. But no real big breakthrough on the horizon. And that's how things would be. Holiday camps, the odd TV or radio appearance, plus the occasional short tour for Granada. We only start that was until autumn 1959, when stardom would finally come knocking, thanks to the unlikely partnership of Matt Munro, Peter Sellers, and soon-to-be Beatles producer George Martin. This is our golden A song that I'll 
She sang it as she taught me in when I was ninety-three. Nine and Who was that bum? Peter Sellers, star of radio's The Goon Show and numerous British comedy movies, also had a recording career. He made his recording debut in 1958 with a disc released by Parlophone Records, produced by George Martin, who at this time was making something of a name for himself in the field of comedy recording. By late 1959, Sellers was working on his follow-up album entitled Song for Swinging Sellers. The musical number was written as the opening track by Ken Hare. With music by George Martin and accompaniment by Ron Goodwin, it was intended that Sellers sing the number in the style of Frank Sinatra, hence the title of the album. Sellers, although more than accomplished as an impressionist, felt he could pull off the job of actually singing like old Blue Eyes effectively. It was an original song, so Sellers had no Sinatra version to refer to for things like the famous Sinatra phrasing. George Martin suggested they find someone who wouldn't necessarily do an impression of Sinatra, more they sing the song in the way that Sinatra might sing it. Two possibilities came to mind, Matt Munro and Dennis Lotus. Deciding that Matt had the better voice of the two and that he sounded more like the legendary singer, George Martin offered the session to Matt. Initially, Matt was more than pleased to be recording again, but this soon turned to disappointment and then anger. Why should he have to imitate someone, albeit the greatest singer in the music industry at the time? If he wasn't good enough for ordinary work, then why should he be considered good enough to sing in the style of someone else? He very nearly turned the job down, but fortunately Mickey intervened and Matt backed down. Initially, the recording was to be used as a guide for Sellers to sing his version of it. On hearing Matt, however, Peter Sellers immediately realised he could never do justice to the song or even approach Sinatra's style as accurately as Matt had done. Sellers insisted that Matt's version be used as the opening track on the album. It then developed into not wishing to reveal who the singer actually was. Matt was to get no credit on the album, and so an alter ego had to be created. George Martin would recall. He came in and did the job like the professional he was, and he was so good at the job and so easy to work with. I paid him a measly £25, and he did the job very quickly and very efficiently as he'd always did. I had to give him a pseudonym, and Fred Flange came to mind. Flange was one of my favourite nonsense words, and, indoctrinated by Spike Milligan, when John Lennon asked me how does artificial double tracking work, I said to him, it's very simple John, all you have to do is put the voice into a double bifurcated sploshing flange. From then on he would say to me, let's flange the voice shall we, and so a new verb was formed. A new verb and a new persona, from Terry Parsons to Matt Munro 
to Fred Flange. Sometimes you smile, sometimes you frown Oh babe, I go up and down My heart spins round and around I'm walking on air Get nowhere, can't swing much longer Don't get no stronger And only you can set me free Just say, take me I'll get you heads, but don't sit on that fence Cause my suspense is killing me To love you can't be a crime Don't keep me swinging all the time That's, that's delightful, delightful, delightful. Mm, I wish I could sing like that. But <laughs> it's not everything singing, you know. It just isn't. I mean, the Bosch are no man's fool, let's face it. And uh, the only important thing these days is, well, in my opinion at least, is uh, rhythm and melody. Rhythm and melody is what the public want. And my Joe, they're going to get it as far as I'm concerned. My <laughs> Joe, yes. Now, wait a minute, I've got my little ukulele here. Illustrate really fully what I mean. My feet are swinging, my head is spinning You've got me dangling on a line Oh yes, you've got me spinning all the time Hmm, it's not quite right yet, I, I grant you, but it, it'll come, it'll come Just a matter of practice, that's all I'll, I'll come back on that in a moment if I may The album was released in late 1959 with a controversial sleeve featuring a body hanging from a tree. In order to keep Matt's true identity a secret, the sleeve notes read, In You Keep Me Swinging, you will hear some very familiar and expensive tones. No, it's not Peter Sellers this time. For mainly political reasons, however, the real identity of this performer must be kept secret. No prizes are offered for the correct solution. In order to keep up the deception, publicity pictures were issued taken of Matt from behind 
with a trademark Sinatra hat and billed as a capital singer. At first, producers, DJs and the press actually believed that Parlophone had managed to get clearance to use the biggest popular vocal artist in the world at that time to appear on a Peter Sellers album. Realising that copyright laws would have prevented such a thing happening, this belief soon turned into speculation. Could it be possible that Sellers, the master mimic himself, had managed to pull off the unthinkable? Eventually, the identity of Fred Flange was finally revealed, and instantly the industry publications were filled with nothing but admiration for Matt Munro, and the work began to flood in. And so, a 25-year relationship began with EMI for Matt Munro. George Martin asked him to record under his own name and became his recording manager, complete with generous contract in hand. The end of the 1950s had been looking bleak for Matt Munro. With the 60s on the horizon, he still had his doubts though. After all, Parlophone was known as the Comedian's label and had been handed a chance at stardom twice before. But 1960 would be the year that everything changed. If Matt was truly to hit the heights that he dreamed of for so long now, the choice of song had to be perfect. And I forgot the gloom of the past. Recording success would elude Matt for a further year, but 1960 proved to be his busiest and most successful to date. Love Walked In, coupled with I Know Her, was released as a single, and although it didn't exactly set the world on fire, it forged a bond between Matt Munro and George Martin that would last a lifetime. When love walked in. There was the cabaret circuit in London, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow, Dublin and Belfast. And I forgot the glue. Matt, recently signed as the featured singer with Johnny Gray and his band, would also tour America this year, making history by giving the first ever concert in the Pentagon. Returning to England, the work continued, but still no real success on the singles chart. It was during this time that Matt would meet and form lasting friendships with Sammy Davis Jr., Bruce Forsyth, Al McCogan, Johnny Dankworth, Jimmy Young, and dozens of other celebrities and singers. It was also about this time that the first signs of Matt's increased drinking would rear its ugly head. 
Socialising with bandmates or filling the empty hours between gigs, it was an easy thing to do. Life on the road could be lonely, but to Matt, as well as pretty much all the company he was keeping, a few drinks here and there couldn't hurt, could it? TV appearances, competing in the Six Nations Singing Contest for the European Cup, and gigs and performances up and down the country filled Matt's working week in 1960, day after day. And the drinking would continue day after day. Away from Mickey, Matt would find solace in alcohol, trying to make the loneliness on the road a little more bearable. And drinking with his fellow performers and bandmates would always prove to be a far better alternative, which was the prospect of spending the evenings in an empty room in an unfamiliar town. Smooth and fresh is the Newport taste Welcome flavour you won't forget Newport tastes smoother Never harsh, never rough Newport tastes fresher Smooth and refreshing day after day that's the taste of Newport. The smoothest tasting menthol cigarettes. In the early 1960s, over the course of a typical year, British commercial TV would screen something in the region of 2,500 different adverts. The majority of these included music or jingles of some sort or other. Some of the best names in popular music would be used, often appearing on screen and household names such as Humphrey Littleton, Jim Dale, Dave King and even Benny Hill could earn extra cash advertising products such as Crunchy Bars, Corona Lemonade or Schweppes. It's here, it's here, it's crystal clear, you team in the bright green bottle. The advertising jingle became a special kind of song that was being hummed more frequently than any being written in Tim Pan Alley at the time. Up just right, new team is here, it's crystal clear, you'll love every single tingle. So Top of the tree were artists such as Cliff Adams, Stargazers and the Adams Singers, with jingles being composed by Johnny Johnston. Just right, Johnny Johnston was renowned for his jingle compositions. So much so that it's almost impossible to list all that he wrote. They became the most memorable jingles featured on TV, performed by his own artists, the Keynotes and the Johnston Singers, with the distinctive lead vocal of Gene Campbell. We're on the town for a wonderful Johnston composed tunes for Birdseye, Bulmer's Cider, Cadbury's Milk Tray and Campbell's Soup. Dining out late. Matt Munro joined this unique band of artists and over the years he would sing jingles for such products as Players and Strand Cigarettes, Wheels Tip Woodbines, Seven O'Clock Blades, Hartley Peas, Butlins, Zow and Baby Sham. It's Baby Sham time. The happiest time of the day. Matt was working harder than ever with little money to show for his efforts. But as the year slowly drew to a close, an event that would change his life forever was appearing just on the horizon.
2nd of November 1960, Matt returned to the studio to work with George Martin. For this particular session, George had elected to use Johnny Spence as musical arranger rather than previous choices of Ron Goodwin and Tommy Watt. All three hit it off magnificently, and this time the song was going to be just right. The decision was made this time to record in stereo with the backing of a 23-piece orchestra to give the number a bigger sound. And even though this particular song sounded absolutely perfect, Matt still had his doubts. This was the era of Cliff Richard, Adam Faith, Tommy Steele and Elvis Presley. Matt thought that it didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of hitting the charts, but he was to be proved wrong in the most delightful of ways. With a B-side of You're the Top of My Hit Parade, Portrait of My Love was released on the 25th of November. By December, the single entered the list of British best-selling records. Brian Matthew played it every week on his Saturday morning show, Saturday Club. These were the days before Top of the Pops and the 6-5 special, and Brian Matthew were pretty much the only show that played pop music at the time. Portrait sold over 200,000 copies, reaching number three in the charts. It stayed there for an incredible 16 weeks. It was Matt's eighth single release and firmly established him as one of the best singers in the country. Overnight, Matt became a star. The phone rang off the hook with offers of TV and radio appearances, gigs, concerts and promotions. It may have taken a while, but he had achieved his dream a few weeks short of his 30th birthday. The big question now, could he follow it up? Matt asked friend and songwriter Don Black to come on board as his manager, to which he readily agreed. As Matt's success grew in the new year with more and more radio and TV appearances and gigs, it was evident to George Martin 
that the choice of follow-up single would be all important. She walks like an angel walks She talks like an angel talks And her hair has a kind of To my mind, she's my kind of girl. On the 3rd of March, after 16 weeks on the chart, Portrait of My Love left the hit parade. The following week, Matt's second single, My Kind of Girl, replaced it. With eyes like an angel's eye. Thanks to a deal with Warwick Records in the USA, the single was also released there, giving Matt his first American hit, where it peaked at number 18 making Matt the first British singer to reach the American Top 20 in over three years. Kind of the single reached a respectable number five in the UK chart. Pretty little face, that face just knocks me off my... A lot of Matt's current work had been secured just after the success of Portrait, so realistically, with two top ten hits in succession, he could have commanded a lot more money at the time. But due to the success of My Kind of Girl in the States, Matt was booked to appear later in the year there on the prestigious Ed Sullivan Show. Like an angel cooks. In the meantime, more concerts, 13 one-nighters with Matt topping the bill with teen idol Jess Conrad. These were followed by shows at the Royal Albert Hall with Adam Faith, Acker Bilk, The Raindrops and Burt Whedon, compared by Brian Matthew. There was work for the Granada circuit, appearing with Frankie Howard and the Mudlarks, and somewhere, squeezed amongst all of this activity, he managed to record his third single. She's really sweet enough to eat. She looks like an angel looks. She even cooks like an angel cooks. And my mind's in a kind of world To my mind, she's my kind of girl And my heart's kind of full of joy Because she told me I'm her kind of boy During these particular recording sessions, Matt laid down Can This Be Love, Why Not Now, Comish Star, and Love Is The Same Anywhere, in preparation for a later album release. I've fallen for the spell. Why Not Now and Can This Be Love was released as a double A side as the next single and reached 24 in the UK chart. To start out so well 
and yet it's as well as his usual appearances, there was a set of Sunday concerts throughout the summer at the North Pier Pavilion in Blackpool before Matt jetted off to America to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show. Doubts, no dreams, With work continuing on the new Parlophone album, Decca released their own Matt Munro LP, cashing in on his success, using the recordings he had made previously for them. Matt continued to tour the UK in a variety of rock-based package shows and also embarked on a 13-week TV series called Meet Matt Munro, replacing the series previously hosted by Michael Holiday. There was a weekly radio series on the light programme Matt's Kind of Music and by August he was riding high in the US chart with My Kind of Girl. Throughout his career, Matt acquired two famous nicknames. He was either known as the Singing Bus Driver or Britain's Answer to Sinatra. The Bus Driver moniker seemed to fade a little as Matt's star ascended, but the comparison to old Blue Eyes proved hard to shake off. It's true that they both recorded the same standards over the years, but that could be said of any of the popular singers of the era. But importantly, it should be noted that Matt never went after Sinatra's songs, preferring instead to find other sources for his material. Vocally, there was a massive difference between the two artists. Sinatra would often approach songs with an evenly aggressive attitude. Whereas with Matt, there was a disarming humility in his delivery that allowed his big notes to explode with breathtaking drama. Matt, although seeing the comparison as a compliment, would also regard it as quite tiresome, especially when accused of actually imitating Sinatra. I sing like Matt Munro. If by singing like Matt Munro I happen to sing a little bit like Sinatra, that's great. As I've said, it's quite a compliment.
Anthony Newley's show, Stop the World I Want to Get Off, spawned several well-known tunes. Perhaps the most famous was Gonna Build a Mountain. Initially, Matt rejected the idea of recording the number, but when presented to him in a swing version rather than its original spiritual interpretation, Matt soon changed his mind. We're gonna build a mountain from a little hill Gonna build a mountain At least I hope I will Gonna build a mountain Gonna build it high I don't know how I'm gonna do it Only know I'm gonna try Gonna build a daydream From a little hope Gonna push that daydream mountain slope Gonna build a daydream Gonna see it through Gonna build a mountain and a daydream Gonna make them both come true Gonna build a heaven From a little hell Gonna build a heaven And I know damn well If I build my mountain with a lot of care And take my daydream up the mountain Heaven will be waiting there Gonna build a mountain from a little hell Gonna build a heaven and I know damn well With a fine young son Who will take my place There'll be a son in my heaven on earth With the Lord's grace When I build that heaven As I will someday Gonna build a new life Slowly all the way You and I together Gonna make life swing We'll fill tomorrow full of happiness Gonna make the whole world swing We'll fill tomorrow full of happiness Gonna make the whole world swing We'll fill tomorrow full of happiness Make the whole world Back in 1960, Frank Sinatra launched his own record label, Reprise, and quickly added a truly spectacular lineup of global performers to its ranks, including Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Rosemary Clooney, and Bing Crosby. Matt's success on both sides of the Atlantic was ticking along nicely by the end of 1961 when Reprise approached him to join this elite group. Matt decided to turn down the offer, electing to stay with his British label. There was a fear that with Sinatra himself also recording for reprise, 
there will be two singers of a similar style recording for the same company, and that Matt's future output would be ignored. Matt's manager, Don Black, pointed out at the time that Ella Fitzgerald, Andy Williams, Perry Como, Victor Moan, Sammy Davis Jr. and Sinatra himself had all recorded songs that Matt had originally introduced, and that none of them had bettered Matt's original version. And so, at the end of September, Matt flew into America with a hectic schedule in hand. Three shows a night, two 35-minute performances and one 20-minute set with songs that would be perfect for an American middle-of-the-road loving audience. Matt, accompanied by the superb arrangements of Johnny Spence, took New York by storm. His American TV debut was of course on The Ed Sullivan Show. Booked for three appearances and billed as Britain's singing sensation, he knocked it out of the park with a perfect rendition of My Kind of Girl. More singles followed, including Gonna Build a Mountain, but surprisingly they failed to make any real impression on the chart. Not that it mattered too much at this stage as Matt was riding high on both sides of the Atlantic. originally performed by Italian artist Mina at the San Remo Pop Festival in 1960. George Martin loved the song so much he requested an English lyric and presented it to Matt who Juga recorded it just after Christmas 1961. With a B-side of Is There Anything I Can Do, it stormed up the chart in early 1961, Before your arms can beg me stay. 
Onwards and upwards through 1961, Matt will be presented with gold discs for Portrait of My Love and My Kind of Girl, and My Kind of Girl itself would win an Ivor Novello Award. There was a summer season in Weymouth, a trip back to Hong Kong, and a third of his Ed Sullivan appearances. London's The Talk of the Town in Leicester Square was one of the most prestigious venues in England. Matt's first appearance here was in February of this year, and he would go on to perform there a record-breaking ten times throughout his career, a feat equalled by only one other artist, Frankie Vaughan. Matt jokingly said throughout his career that he was determined to break the record, but the venue closed down before he had the chance and he declared the contest a draw. He was crowned top British singer by Melody Maker and singer of the year by Weekend Magazine. More celebrity friendship were formed with people such as Sid James and Tony Hancock, Mike and Bernie Winters. Matt's friendship with Hancock was particularly close, and when Matt learnt of his tragic suicide in 1968, it devastated him. After all the years, I can't bear the tears to fall so softly as I leave. As I leave you there As I leave you flowers on There isn't anything as wonderful as spring When love comes along On and on through 1962 there were more tours with acts such as Danny Williams and the Four Freshmen There were trips to Europe and a two-week residency at the London Palladium. And fills my heart with song. When Love Comes Along, released in early 1962, reached number 46 in the chart. Nothing can go wrong. 1962 would bring more TV shows and tours with Freddie and the Dreamers, as well as Dusty Springfield. The Wonderland When Love Famously, 1962 would also bring Parlophone and George Martin, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Love joins your heart to mine. We're
George's decision to sign the Beatles turned Parlophone into one of the world's most famous and sought after record labels. Has us lost in time amid the passing. Also in 1962, Matt would embark on a two-man tour with Tony Hancock. Matt would open up the first half with a musical performance, and Hancock would perform his comedy act and impressions in the second. When Tony became very close, enjoying each other's company and finding it more than easy to settle into a routine of heavy drinking after each performance. The three-week show run cemented Matt and Tony's friendship, and it was around this time that Kenneth Williams, the carry-on actor who had worked for many years on Hancock's radio and TV shows, wrote a notorious entry in his diary. The diary entry is from Monday the 24th of April 1972 and was written during the filming of Carry On Abroad. Sat in the coach waiting and later in the caravan with Sid James, he talked at length about Hancock and said that he used to go about the flat naked with excretia and vomit about and that his sexual appetites were depraved and that Matt Munro told him he'd woken up one night to find Hancock going down on him for the fellatio and that Matt had given him a right-hander. This is certainly a new twist. I'd never heard that Hancock was interested in homosexuality. Sid said it got so that he'd try anything. Of course, one wonders how much of this is factual and how much gossip put together from disjointed accounts. So obviously, Kenneth Williams had heard the story third-hand from Sid James whilst they were filming Carry On Abroad, and Sid was, of course, a great friend of both Tony Hancock and Matt Munro. The incident is also mentioned by Cliff Goodwin in his Hancock biography, but with Matt and his family remaining close friends with Hancock for several years after, it seems unlikely that the incident may ever have taken place. Three more singles would hit the chart in 1962. My Love and Devotion peaked at number 29, When Love Comes Along number 49, and the classic Softly As I Leave You reaching the top 10.
1962 would also see the release of the first James Bond movie, Doctor No. And the following year, Matt was asked to record the theme tune to Connery's second outing as 007 from Russia With Love. association with the movie ensured that it reached number 20 in the UK chart and cemented Matt Munro's reputation as a worldwide artist. For a moment. It would also lead to Matt being crowned the king of the 60s movie theme songs. So. Still my tongue-tied young Pride would not let my love for you show In case you'd say no To Russia I flew Matt would sing the theme tune to Born Free, which would eventually become his signature tune. Questi giorni quando vieni il bel sole. There would also be Wednesday's Child from the film The Quiller Memorandum, and This Way Mary from Mary Queen of Scots. And later in the decade, on Days Like These, the theme tune to The Italian Job. On days like these when skies are blue and fields are green I look around and think about what might have been And then I hear sweet music float around my head as I recall the many things we left unsaid It's on days like these that I remember Singing songs and drinking wine While your eyes played games with mine On days like these 
I wonder what became of you. Perhaps the most surprising fact to emerge from this period relates to Born Free. Now regarded as one of the best loved Matt Munro numbers and possibly his most famous tune, it never charted in the UK. Not even the top 100. It managed to hit 126 in the US Billboard chart however and was nominated for Best Song at the Academy Awards. Traditionally, the award is presented to the writers of the song and Matt was not even asked to perform at the Oscars ceremony. The organisers instead bizarrely electing to use the instrumental version performed by Roger Williams and his orchestra, plus a huge choir with singers of all different races and backgrounds. John Barry, who wrote Born Free, would win two Oscars that night, one for best song and one for best score. With Don Black as his writing partner, they became the first British partnership to win the award for Best Song. version, despite going unrecognised at home and in the States, would however top the charts in Australia, Jamaica, Singapore and of course the Philippines. Born free, as free as the wind blows, as free as the grass grows, born free to follow your heart. Live free And beauty surrounds you The world still astounds you It's time you look at a star Stay free Where no walls divide you as a roaring tide so there's no need to hide born free and life is worth living but only worth living cause you're born free In 1964, Matt was selected to represent the UK in the Eurovision Song Contest. 
In order to select a song, he was permitted to select his preferred writers from a list supplied by the Songwriters Guild of Great Britain, and each would then be invited to submit a new number for him to sing. The list was certainly impressive. There was Tony Hatch, Lionel Bart, Norman Newell, Hal Shaper and Leslie Brickus. They all produced a song that Matt would go on to perform in A Song for Europe in February 1964. Oh, I love the little things you say. The public vote ensured that Tony Hatch's I Love the Little Things would be the song that Matt would sing that march in Copenhagen. Let's stay forever together this way, my love, I'm so in love with you. Despite a superb performance on the night, Matt was beaten into second place by 16-year-old Gigliola Cinchetti, representing Italy with Non Holetta. So lucky that I found a girl so fine, I love the little things you say. And I love the little things you do Let's stay forever together this way My love, I'm so in love with you On and on the shows would continue. Performances with stars such as Bruce Forsyth and Bob Monkhouse, Russ Conway and Shirley Bassey, and that would lead to long-lasting and genuine warm friendships. I love the little things you say And I love the little things you do Let's stay forever together this way My love, I'm so in love with you One song in particular from the 1964 Eurovision Song Contest seemed to hit home with Matt. It was the Austrian entry, sung by Udo Jürgens. In particular, Matt felt that the tune was quite special and asked Don Black to write some English lyrics. The song would eventually become Walk Away and in 1964 will provide Matt with his highest UK chart entry, reaching number four. Walk away, please go. Before you throw your life away A life that I could share for just a day We should have met some years ago For your sake I say 
walk away. Just go. It would spend four months in the British chart and earn Matt another gold record. Sinatra would also record his version of Walk Away, but declined to release it on hearing Matt's version. With no regret, don't look back at me. Just try to forget. Matt himself would also record and release the song in Spanish. That cannot come true So be strong Reach the stars now Walk away Walk on With the song at number four in the UK and number three in Ireland, that same week Matt was also number one in Japan with From Russia With Love and number one in the Philippines with I Dream Of You. So don't say a word just run right away mm-hmm. Goodbye my love My tears will fall Now that you're gone I can't help but cry But I must go on I'm sad that I After searching so long Knew I loved you But told you Walk away Walk on Walk The success Matt experienced in the Philippines was beyond compare. He was bigger than the Beatles, and the personal favourite of First Lady Imelda Marcos, who would attend almost every concert Matt would go on to perform there. And we are not talking intimate gigs here. Whenever Matt appeared in the Philippines, it would be a tour of stadium-sized venues, with crowds that were refused to sit for the duration. Each time he arrived in the country, he would be greeted by tens of thousands of people at the airport and lining the streets. And Matt would also be expected to meet President Marcos and his wife and give personal performances. The scale of the adulation never ceased to amaze Matt, and he would return to perform there year after year. The Philippines loved Matt, and he returned that love, always humbled by the adulation. Each visit to the Philippines would always be accompanied by the chance to return to Hong Kong to perform and to meet old friends from his army days. Matt was never happier than when touring the Far East and would always find it difficult when it became time to return home. She said, my son, I beg of you I have a wish that must come true 
the last thing you can do for Mama. Late 1964 would see Matt back in the chart with For Mama and a world tour taking in the USA, Japan and Rome with a stop off in Hong Kong to meet up with old friends and celebrate his birthday. To cry, what could I say? How hard I tried to find a word I prayed she would not see me cry So much to say that should be heard But only time to say goodbye to Mama Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you Remember I'll always be true And then while I'm away I'll ride home every day And send all my loving to you in 1965, finally, after a three-year wait, Matt made his debut at the Talk of the Town, and his version of All My Loving hit the top spot in the Philippines. And hope that my dreams will come true And then while I'm away I'll ride home every day and I'll send all my loving to you All my loving I'll send to you All my loving Darling, I'll be true Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. There were only two chart entries for Matt in 1965. Without You, I Cannot Love reached number 37. And Matt's version of Paul McCartney's Yesterday broke the top ten before peaking at number eight. Hanging over me. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I said something wrong Now I long for yesterday Yesterday Love was such an easy game to play 
now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why she? The failure for chart recognition in his home country frustrated Matt. For elsewhere around the world, especially the Far East, Matt's single and album releases were all consistently hitting the top spot. Said something. 1965 would see summer seasons in Blackpool and Yarmouth, topping the bill alongside Jimmy Tarbuck and Mike and Bernie Winters and The Bachelors. This coupled with numerous recording sessions for both singles and albums, along with a worldwide touring schedule, proved to be one of his busiest years. Need a place to hide away. Yes, I believe in yesterday. Matt would move briefly to America after being offered a contract by Capital, who had discovered they had a massive hole to fill in the market following the death of Nat King Cole. But Matt would soon become homesick and returned home to England. His popularity overseas meant that Matt would travel for nine months every year, particularly New Zealand, Singapore, Australia, Hong Kong, New York and the Philippines. Matt learned early in his career that if he recorded Spanish language versions of his songs, it would open up an entire new audience for him. Matt would continue to release songs in Spanish throughout his career and record not just singles, but entire albums. No one could accuse Matt Munro of being a protest song singer, but back in 1970 he became just that, choosing to record a song that was so far removed from his usual style it surprised many people, but it was catchy and showed the younger breed of artists out there just how it should be done. Again, it became one of Matt Munro's most famous songs, yet failed to reach the charts. Shirley would gulp down her breakfast, shut the fridge and join the throng. Margaret Beatty snatched the milk and scanned the news and went along. Annie Harris drew the curtains, screwed her eyes up, had a beep. Saw the marchers, heard their voices making early morning noises. Stumbled back to bed and tried to sleep Come with us, 
run with us. We're gonna change the world. You'll be amazed, so full of praise. When we've rearranged your world, we're gonna change your world. Shuffling through the cold black morning, went the marcher's spirit slow, grunting greetings, grimly pressing on to where they had to go. The sun came up, they brightened, stopped to have their thermos brew. Annie Harris got up gladly, pondered for a little sadly. Then got on with what she had to do. So come with us, run with us. We're gonna change the world. You'll be amazed, so full of praise. When we've rearranged your world, we're gonna change your world. Target numbers swollen, up the marchers, banners go, chanting, shouting out with leaflets, protest for everyone to know. Sit in front of all the traffic, Harry busy shopping wives, try to stir their ostrich notions, whip them up to wild emotions, put some fire into their wretched lives. So come with us, run with us. We're gonna change the world, you'll be amazed, so full of praise When we rearrange your world, we're gonna change your world Matt's drinking would rear its ugly head over the years, creating numerous health issues. There would be long periods of abstinence, however, as Matt realised the damage that he was doing. Matt's career would continue through the 1970s with a seemingly constant overseas touring, but they were all good times, especially when Matt had his family around. He encouraged his son Matt Jr. to sing, and he is now a very successful and popular entertainer, performing all of his father's most famous numbers. The UK charts, however, would not be threatened by Matt Munro for several years, until 1973. On UK TV, Barry Foster was proving to be popular as Dutch detective Van der Velt. The Simon Park Orchestra reached number one in the chart with the instrumental version of the theme tune. Matt would mark his triumphant return to the UK hit parade with his vocal rendition entitled And You Smiled, reaching number 28. I thought that I had the world on the end of a string I thought that I was a millionaire Free as the dawn and then came the morning I turned and I saw you there and you smiled, and you smiled with laughter in your eyes Then the world seemed to fade away And you smiled, and you smiled, and I was captured, don't you know? I'd like to stay 
got something worth talking about I was a fool not to see before My life was empty until your love showed me the things I've been looking for And you smiled and you smiled with laughter in your eyes Then the world seemed to fade away And you smiled and you smiled and I was captured, don't you know Girl, I'm so crazy about you I know I can't live without you Once I would run when somebody said Why didn't I try to settle passed away, aged just 54, on the 7th of February 1985, from liver cancer. He was a heavy smoker throughout his life and battled his demons with alcohol. He never gained superstar status, but was known as the singer's singer. His admirers included Bing Crosby, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra even singled out Matt Munro as the only British singer that he ever listened to and would famously say, In all my years in the vocalist business, I have listened to all my co-working boy singers constantly, not only enjoying their work, but hoping I might learn something from them. So we come to Matt Munro. If I had to choose three of the finest male vocalists in the singing business, Matt would be one of them. His pitch was right on the nose, his word enunciations letter perfect, his understanding of a song thorough. It will be missed very much, not only by myself, but by his fans all over the world. He was a credit to the music industry and was praised by the highest names in showbiz around the world. He will always be remembered as the man who left us with some of the greatest classical songs of the 20th century. And it was, of course, much more than the UK's answer to Frank Sinatra or the singing bus driver. Between 1964 and 1965, six women were brutally murdered in the west of London. All were prostitutes and similarities to these killings and the Whitechapel murders of 70 years earlier would lead to the killer being dubbed Jack the Stripper. The case remains unsolved to this day, but there are a few surprising and famous names that were put forward as potential culprits. Join me next time as I tell the story of the Hammersmith nude murders. Thanks for listening.
You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley Podcast or take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.com or you can send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com This has been a Stinking Pause production. the world, the nation, and the Texas News Triangle. This is Hourly News. It's just been announced that there's going to be a musician's strike. Until we hear more, here's some music. Shirley would goat down her breakfast, shut the fridge and join the throng. Margaret Beatty snatched the milk and scanned the news and went along. Everybody out! Annie Harris drew the curtains, screwed her eyes up, had a beat. Come on! Saw the marchers, heard their voices making early morning noises. Stumbled back to bed and tried to sleep. Come with us, run with us. We're gonna change the world, you'll be amazed, so full of praise. When we rearrange your world, we're gonna change... <coughs> you couldn't keep it up.